just going to get right into it. I have a style that's probably going to be hopefully not too boring for you. I like to write out my thoughts because I think that it helps me to guide uh, what I'm saying, what I'm doing. So I hope that you'll be able to track with me. My only fear is that I'm going to like zip through this in like five minutes. Um, Maybe that's not a fear for you all, but uh, we'll see. Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5 bring to my mind the last major battle in the Revolutionary War, Yorktown. 1781, after five long years of conflict, Lord Cornwallis, surrounded by patriot forces and the French allies, succumbed to the inevitable and sought terms of surrender. The lion Britannia bent its knee to the mouse of the 13 American colonies. To honor the occasion, the English played a tune called The World Turned Upside Down as they marched onto the field of surrender. The winds of change were blowing. Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5 are deceptively simple. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Words which turn the world and its understanding on its head. Simple, compelling words. But first, before I get into the meat of these words, a couple of questions. One, who is Jesus talking to? The text answers this question. It's his disciples. But is it just his disciples? Is he speaking in hushed tones so that no one else can hear? Is it just the 12? Is it the 70 or more? Regardless, it's those who have identified themselves with Jesus, his message, person, and call. Some have personally been invited to learn at the foot of the rabbi. Others have heeded that yearning in their hearts for the arrival of the Messiah and have been compelled by Jesus' teaching. But these words are being shared by Christ with his intimates as he is surrounded by the crowds who want something from him. Perhaps they want a good show, an entertaining time, physical healing, maybe food. Suffice it to say that Christ is surrounded by needy people, probably poor, maybe dirty, even smelly. Not the best and the brightest, but the forlorn and destitute. But this particular teaching is to his disciples, those who came to him by call, curiosity, or compulsion. And this is the social context. This is the world that Christ spoke his word into. The Pax Romana was under assault from the zealots, Jewish firebrands who wanted to throw off the yoke of Roman overlordship And in those in authority acted to perpetuate their own self-serving structures. Pontius Pilate, unhappy with his posting to the armpit of the Roman Empire, didn't want the boat rocked. He wanted out, a more posh posting. Herod Antipas, a Jew, the titular king of Palestine, maintained his family's fortunes as a quisling ruler subject to Rome's whims and authority. You might remember his father, Herod the Great. This is the guy that ordered all the babies in Bethlehem to be killed around the time of Jesus' birth. A fine family legacy. 
the ruling council of the Jews in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, composed of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They sought to maintain and expand their hold over the people of Israel through their creation, interpretation, execution of the ever more complicated law. Power. Maintaining it, expanding it, exercising it. This was the primary idol of the first century Palestine. Times, they haven't changed much. Into this confusion, this darkness, this turmoil, a new voice spoke, one with authority, Jesus. But really, it was an old voice. Just as God spoke and brought light, life, and order out of nothing, and the prophets call the people of Israel to repentance, obedience, and right relationship with their God, Christ spoke to set things right. And as he entered into his ministry, he confounded those in authority because the authority that he claimed was his own, not one based on human tradition or power. He fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to turn the world on its head. And he opened his mouth and taught them. The Logos Jesus, described in John, spoke the Logos, the Word. The Word which became flesh, lived in flesh, and gave us His flesh. Also gave us His life, so that we too might see what it means to live as Him. To see the Gospel fleshed out. Jesus spoke, taught, and lived the Sermon on the Mount. He embodied and fleshed, I'm not sure if that's a word, the Beatitudes. He exhaled. He exhaled blessing. He so identified himself with those who yearned for him and were desperate for his kingdom that he came to live among them and heal them, soul and body. He came to give life, life abundant. He came to set things right. So what does it mean that the merciful are blessed? For they shall receive mercy. In the Lord's Prayer, which we recite each Sunday, we ask God to forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. As if the forgiveness of God is conditioned on our own forgiveness of others. These two forms of forgiveness, God to man and man to man, occur in parallel. Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer reads, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This reading of Christ's prayer assumes that prior to our approaching the throne of grace for our own absolution, we must first forgive others. Mercy, however, is more than just forgiveness. It is compassion. It is pity. It is a desire and a yearning to ease suffering, to restore what is broken. 
It is an active mending of hearts, lives, and relationships. A setting right. Jesus lived a life of mercy. He sought the company of those who were weak, powerless, voiceless. It was Christ who said, let the little children come unto me. It was Christ who fed the 5,000. It was Christ who healed the paralytic. It was Christ who healed the blind man from birth. It was Christ who healed the lepers. It was Christ who sat down to eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. It was Christ who, when confronted by the scribes and Pharisees with a woman caught in adultery, who offered words of life and forgiveness. Just like a beaten army flees the field of battle, the woman's accusers, starting with the oldest down to the youngest, all left her when faced with Jesus' challenge that he who was without sin should cast the first stone. Jesus alone remained with her. And he said as he stood and turned to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Has he not spoken these words to each of us who has heeded his call? Have these words not acted as a balm for each of our souls? Forgiveness, mercy such as this, places a demand on us. There is a claim on you, a claim higher than anything you can imagine. It is the claim of God who knows you, loves you, comforts you, and has bought you with his blood, and has adopted you as his own. The claim is simple. Forgive, for you have been forgiven. Forgive, because I forgave you. Be mercy-hearted, mercy-minded, because I love you. If you do this, when you do this, you are an active agent and participant in the building of God's kingdom here and now. The alternative is a life of bitterness and self-destruction. We should never be like the servant in Christ's parable who owed his master 10,000 talents, about $1.5 billion in today's currency. And it could actually be triple that depending on who you believe. The money, the debt was forgiven. He refused to show forgiveness to his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, about $2,000. There were consequences for him. The master turned the wicked, compassionless compassionless servant over to the jailers until his debt was paid in full. We must forgive our brothers and sisters from our heart. And if you need to have your brother and sister defined, for the legalists amongst us, check out Christ's parable, the Good Samaritan, in Luke chapter 10. Speaking of hearts. The pure in heart are blessed, for they shall see God. But what does it mean to be pure in heart? Is it even possible to be pure in heart when you're sinful and broken? And what does it mean to see God? This word from Jesus is a clear repudiation and refutation. I love those words. They sound really strong. (laughs) Rejection, I guess, is another way you could say. Of the Pharisees' emphasis on physical, external, legalistic, cleanliness 
the law. It was not what goes into a person's mouth that makes a person unclean, but what comes out of his mouth that makes him unclean. For it is out of the abundance of a person's heart that the mouth speaks. For the heart is not just the seed of our emotions, due respect to Valentine's Day, but it is, in the ancient Jewish mind, the seat of our will and our mind as well. The entire interior life of the person. And what comes from a bent and broken heart? Evil thoughts, murder, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things which make us unclean. These are the things which make us impure. So to know the problem is to not cure the problem. How then is the heart made right? Redeemed, if you will. Ezekiel prophesied that God and his redemptive work in Israel would perform surgery. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. A new heart is a gift from God. The alternative to this divine heart transplant was and is continued separation from God. And the natural consequences for one's actions. A severe judgment. To be pure in heart then is to align your thoughts, desires, feelings completely with the will of God. In essence, it is to offer yourself daily as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. To not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Do not live unto yourself, but in all things recognize that you are a child of the Most High God. Who has the the ability to redeem and reform even the most wicked of sinners. And he delights in this, not wanting any to perish. The father demonstrates his loving kindness in the context of relationship. Jewish term that sort of captures this is hesed. A Hebrew word in concept, it just flows the Old Testament. He delights for us to live in right relationship with him. This is the same quality of loving kindness that Ruth demonstrated to her mother-in-law, Naomi, when she refused to leave her upon the death of her husband and return to Israel. This is the same quality of loving kindness that Boaz demonstrates to Ruth when he becomes her protector and kinsman redeemer and eventually husband. This is the same loving kindness that empowered Jesus Christ to spread his arms wide upon the cross and instead of calling 10,000 angels to avenge him, to look with eyes of compassion on the world, on the crowd, which only hours before had yelled crucify him and had only days before heralded him as Messiah. He is able to look from the cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To see God as the pure in heart see God is for the believer to seek and see Christ alone.
And only then will he be able to see God the Father. For only the Son knows the Father and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Yet we are like blind men who grope for the wall and stumble at noon as in the twilight. We hope for light and behold darkness. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. This is the world we live in. This is where we are called to work in our broken world, our broken communities, our broken church, our broken families, and our broken selves. Is it any wonder that every Sunday we as the body of Christ watch the body of Christ be broken again and then we eat from this broken body? Maybe, just maybe, this is a clue as to how we are to live. Broken and in submission to one another. Remember Paul's words to the Philippians we read earlier today. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but... In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And in the brokenness, we become restored and restorers. And in the the corners of the king's domain that he has empowered and tasked us to work. We are to act as gardeners, planting seeds, cultivating life. So that we may show ourselves approved, good and faithful servants. Another Hebrew concept later in time that fits in with this idea of kingdom building is that of tikkun olam, T-I-K-K-U-N, olam. It means the healing the world or repairing the world. And there is no small or unimportant task in this kingdom work. It was Luther who said, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers, performs some other menial task for his child, and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, God with all his angels and creatures is smiling. I think his wife is also smiling. (laughs) This is a small picture of what it means to be broken, to die to self, to serve in love. We must live Christ-centered lives, crying out with the voice of a dreamer or idealist, why cannot these things be? If all of our passions, personal preferences, goals, insecurities, and idols were cast aside so that we might see Christ as he is, we would gain entrance into the Holy of Holies. But I do not know how to do this, other than to ask God for his help. My prayer is that God would reveal himself to me, that he would reveal my sins so that I might repent, and that he reform me and remold me into a man of God. This is my sincere desire and desperate prayer. I want to be like Christ in my laying down and in my rising up. I want my parting thought as I close my eyes at night to be of him. I want my first thought as my eyes open in the morning to be of him. I want every conversation I have to be filled with grace and leavened with life-giving words. I want to bear Christ. I want to reflect the love of Christ to the point where it is not I who is seen, but it is all Christ. Soli Deo Gloria. All to the glory of God. 
Then, perhaps, then I can see the face of God. I want to be like the saints in the medieval paintings with their eyes wide, open, with expectation, looking upward towards the heavens, towards God, waiting to be filled by Him. Not like the Buddha with eyes closed to the world and its need. If we undertake this holy work of pure thinking, pure seeing, pure doing, we will be blessed because we will see God. What of the peacemakers? They shall be called sons of God. Remember the Pax Romana I spoke of earlier? And how now we are arguably in the last days of the Pax I don't mean like chicken pox. Peace for the Latin scholars amongst us. Pox Americana. These pieces of Rome and America were forged with steel and maintained with blood. What kind of peace is Jesus referring to? World peace? Peace within a community? Family peace? Perhaps internal peace? And how do we achieve it? Many Jews of Jesus' day expected the Messiah to overthrow the kings of the world so that a new Jewish theocracy could be enthroned. The Davidic line reinstituted, with its center being Jerusalem. When Christ made his intentions clear to not pursue this kingdom of man, many turned away. They abandoned him. Pontius Pilate, however, Understood, he was sentencing a real king to death when he ordered this charge. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, to be prepared in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin and posted on the cross above Jesus' head. The Hebrew understanding of peace or shalom is circular, organic, it's relational. Shalom is not simple and inner peace which you enjoy alone it is something much bigger it is community well-being encompassing rightness which pervades everything it is right relationship within yourself with your neighbor with the land and most importantly with God Charles Williams one of the inklings with Tolkien and Lewis described a similar state of harmony with his term co-inherence Defined roughly as things that exist in essential relationship with another. As innate components of the other. He would sign his letters under the closing in the city under the mercy. An apt encapsulation of the church of the incarnation's identity and mission. Another way to read this beatitude would be to say, blessed are the whole, W-H-O-L-E, makers or community builders the heart of the activity being blessed is reconciliation through the expression of love an important facet of this activity is the setting of things right within the context of human relationship the church in Rwanda has engaged and is engaging in this sort of peacemaking and reconciliation as it wrestles with the painful healing process as Hutu and Tutsi neighbors who committed atrocities against one another learn to forgive and love one another. Have you ever seen the Hotel Rwanda? It happened. And the church is seeking to restore the people. 
The same process took place in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Program after the fall of apartheid. Peacemaking for Christians is prescribed by the life and death of Jesus. Each week we pass the peace of Christ amongst ourselves, yet we live with conflict and broken relationships. Dietrich Bonhoeffer pushed this concept further in calling the church to make peace. To do this, they renounce violence and strife. Jesus' disciples maintained peace by choosing to suffer instead of causing others to suffer. They preserve community when others destroy it. They renounce self-assertion and are silent in the face of hatred and injustice. That is how they overcome evil with good. In becoming a peacemaker, we become a son of God, a child of God, which means that we are connected to God's quality of making things right. Said differently, it means we're on God's side, working with him. And that's a nice place to be. In each of these three beatitudes of mercy-mindedness, pure-heartedness, and peacemaking, Almost sounds like a list of care bears. (laughs) We have an opportunity and an invitation to engage in a life which makes us more fully human. In demonstrating mercy, being pure of heart, and in making peace, and reconciling those in discord, we are acting in a way that is in line with who we are truly meant to be. When God created Adam and Eve, he did so because it brought him pleasure to interact with his creation. And it brings him pleasure now to interact with us in a positive and life-giving and life-affirming way. When we enter into labor with God, we bring delight to the heart of the Father who loves us. When we demonstrate mercy, especially when it's hard, we act like our Father who showed us a severe mercy. When we seek purity of heart, we draw nearer to God because he is holy and he delights in holy and pure things. When we make peace and reconcile those at war with one another, we act like Christ who went to slaughter like a Passover lamb on the cross so that there could be peace between God and man. We become children of God, princes and princesses of Narnia, and he delights in us. As one of my favorite poets says in his Mad Farmer Manifesto, the world is a holy vision had we clarity to see it, a clarity that men depend on men to make. Perhaps this vision, this holy vision, can only be seen from the cross, which we too must mount and be nailed to. For we are crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. It is only from this perch of suffering, this place of death to self, that we can be the real hands and feet of Christ, complete with the scars. As we labor with God to build his kingdom, one apology, one pure thought, 
one warm hug, one humble stone at a time. 